welcome to Estudial Illusions. I am so super excited to introduce our uh, guest who has been a part of so many different fandoms, the uh, franchises that uh, we've covered over the course of the show, from Star Wars to Star Trek to Xena Warrior Princess. Uh, she has a new film that comes out on March 5th we, uh, called Dreamcatcher. And we have uh, Adrienne Wilkinson here to talk with us about, uh, about her extensive career. Adrienne, how are you? I am so well. Thank you so much for checking. I'm excited to be here. It's wonderful to not only get to talk about Dreamcatcher, but to do it with people who know the history, including Xena. What, what? <laughs> so I'm, I'm also just unbelievably, the timing of this worked out so perfectly. When we were doing uh, Mandalorian coverage uh, over uh, in the fall and I, I guess uh, th through December, uh, I was constantly saying to people listening, like, you really have to check out The Clone Wars because, um, or, you, you know, for, for so long of Star Wars, it was like, you know, you have the main series and then you have all the supplemental materials that were, you know, you know kind of for, for more of the really diehard fans or for people of the animated show. But you didn't have to if you just wanted to be a casual fan. And now we're kind of entering into a space that as a super fan, I kind of prefer, which is, okay now you really have to like go back and check out that stuff. So we were constantly urging people to go back. So I know we have a lot of listeners who are probably fresh off just kind of seeing you in that. So that's really cool. Beautiful. Love it. So um, I want to start with Dreamcatcher because there's something that I kind of caught on when I watched the film and then I went and I watched uh, Star Trek Renegades and I watched Xena. And I, th I think kind of why uh, w sort of what, what makes you such a great actress and the kind of energy you bring to your roles is – a lot of your characters, including uh, your character Josephine, you you have a kind of a way of of bringing an energy that sort of exists. You're, you're not uh, some of your characters would would fit more in, under the uh, role of like antihero, like Lexa Singh, and some like Eve kind of skirt that line a little bit, and and Josephine also. But you have kind of a way of introducing, you know, a lot of storytelling. There's protagonists, antagonists, and a lot of your characters exist kind of in more of a morally gray area where you're there's a lot more depth to it. Uh, I don't disagree. Uh, I, I do play a lot of characters that have multiple sides to them. So throughout their story, you, you will get glimpses into their best and their worst, their greatest and their weakest, just all of those different pieces. And you're right. I think Josephine is no exception. I think she's incredibly powerful, uh, chooses to be and uses it sort of vindictively, but I also think that that's because she started as being incredibly vulnerable and she's had to craft this armor that she now uh, wears everywhere, you know, wears into every room that she that she's part of. And I, I just think that every I think a lot of people find comfort in knowing exactly what character they're playing and playing exactly that, where personally, I find comfort in those gray areas. I like that every good person has bad days and bad thoughts. And I like to explore those and equally that every bad person is also loved by someone and loves someone. So there's, you know, humanity is very complicated. Uh, couldn't agree more. And uh, for listeners, uh, Dreamcatcher is, uh, it, it's a horror film that takes place at a multi-day long uh, music festival, kind of like a rave and uh, it's got a lot of slasher elements in it. it. It also, in a lot of ways, is kind of more of an intimate uh, family drama. And you play Josephine, who's a, a, a talent agent. And I was thinking, you know, I, I in, in my free time, I watch a lot of, uh, I've been really making use of a Criterion membership and watching a lot of super old movies. And I was thinking about how a lot of, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of, uh, female agents that are in in films and a lot of them like there's the stereotype of sort of the raspy uh chain smoking uh mm. older talent agent who kind of has a raspy voice and is like so you want to be a star like stuff <laughs> like that and i looked and i'm like you know this this you know, josephine is is both sort of uh refreshing and unique and uh you you kind of occupy a singular role in the cast it's it's kind of a more uh a lot of the cast are younger and you're, you're a character who's got more experience and, and kind of is, is, is very confident in herself. Oh, completely. Uh, Josephine, uh, there's so many pieces in there to unpack and all of what you said. Um, Josephine is definitely confident. She's certainly more established than the rest of the cast. She's kind of the only person in the movie or one of only maybe two people in the movie that 
have sort of real jobs. Uh, you know, this the focus is a, a group of young adults that go to this music festival. And while they are dynamic in their own ways, they're definitely still getting their lives established. And then, you know, you have Josephine who sort of walks on the scene. And I describe her as an axe. She walks into the room as an axe just beheading people that piss her off. Just anybody that that she's, you know, is is eating up her time. She just gets rid of them in whatever way. And that can be verbally. She just cuts them down or, you know, she pays them off or she does whatever. And it's it's her way of keeping her momentum flowing. Like she's going to not let any of these guys derail her. She has worked her ass off to become successful in this business and no one's going to take it from her. So she is protective of her client, who is the headline DJ at this music event. But really, she's just protective of this life that she has built for herself. Yeah, and I mean, you bring such a degree of, of realism to uh, the role. I was thinking a lot about there's a scene uh, where you're at your character's house. And I think there's also another scene I'm thinking of um, where Josephine is, is, is talking. And, you know, young actors come to Hollywood and they sort of have, oh, this is my vision. I want to do this. And, you know, as you kind of work your way up the ladder, a lot of the time it's uh, you doing things. Maybe you don't make choices you don't necessarily want to do, but you've got somebody like a, an agent supposed to be on your side and tell you, here's what you got to do. And it's kind of like you're, you're playing sort of a devil on the shoulder who also kind of has a lot of practical real world experience in this and saying like, yeah, you may not like this, but this is the way it goes. You know, you've been kind of characters from really been hardened by uh, Hollywood, but also at the same time, like what's kind of beautiful about it is, as you were saying earlier, She's a character who you, you don't necessarily have to like or, uh, you know, want to want to grab a, well, I was supposed to say a beer, but your, your character drinks a lot of wine. I, maybe that <laughs> would be more, more appropriate. Um, you know, somebody at the end of the day, you know, you'd want you'd want her on your side because, you know, love them or hate them. You know, you, you made a lot of good points. Or yeah. Josephine did. No, that's true. I think, you know, Josephine is not someone that I would want to hang out with because I think I'd be afraid of her backstabbing me all the time. <laughs> But I would, uh, but I can say without a doubt, I respect her completely. I think as long as if she is on your side, if she is, for instance, representing you, if you're her client, I think you have no qualms that she will do whatever it takes to make you successful and to protect you and to, you know, just uh, be as supportive as you could ever want. And I... I think I think also I mean you 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 bring such a sort of uh, necessary and vital energy to the role, especially as uh, you know some uh, there's other points in the film where they're talking about how kind of rightly pointing out that we're we're living in an age where one bad tweet could you know a, a DJ is uh, ascendant their whole career is on the rise and they look like they're untouchable but you can be brought down with uh, you know one one bad slip or all of that and yeah. Ten years ago, it would have been probably easier to see, uh, you know, a, a man in your uh, role, and yet at the same time, to see somebody who is, uh, you know, powerful and hungry, and also, you know, not afraid to get their hands dirty, because yeah, I mean, this the world is kind of ugly out there. Oh, completely. I just <laughs> I think that Josephine is incredibly savvy, and she gets all of it. She gets the power of every piece of herself that she has constructed. You know, she. Uh, she could have, if she thought it was, if she thought that it would be beneficial, she would be acting older than she was and chain smoking. She would be being that older <laughs> pro. But she's smart enough to know that that's not where things are now. So, you know, she's got this, now she's in designer clothes and she's in spike heels and she is, you know, like she has big, every scene, her hair is very big. And in my mind, that's because she is, trying to make herself even bigger than she is. Like she wants to be even taller, even more intimidating. You know, she's doing whatever small thing she can to just, you know, psychologically uh, work on her behalf, you know? Yeah. And I mean, a, a lot of the film also talks about uh, Faustian bargains and deal with the devil and, uh, you know, so things that the things that people uh, have, have had to do to, to get ahead and all of that. And there's just like it's you know with the horror the horror genre you go there to kind of watch you know the gruesome uh, blood and all of that and it, it it's so 
it was just so fun. I was thinking about all your other roles as an as as uh, Josephine. It's just kind of delighting in the fact that uh, she's got these situations under her command. She's going to offer people money to stay silent, and she's kind of smiling as she realize like she's been in this business long enough to understand that. Yeah, you may feel ugly when you're being told to take money, but you're going to kind of shut up, smile, and take it, and that's kind of all there is to it. Exactly. Yeah, she's smart enough to know that the predictable income, she, the predictable outcome she has control over. You know, she, she knows if she offers money, they might, you know, futz a little bit, but eventually she's going to get her way. I, it's, it's, it's really fun. It made me think a lot about how, um, how Eve just kind of, uh, in, in Xena late in the fifth season, just made, made really one of the more memorable, uh, impression introductions, at least on the show, the, just in the heat of the Roman battle coming in and really just sword wielding and, uh, it, 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 in a lot of ways, it paralleled the uh, uh, Xena's own introduction in the first season of Hercules. Yeah. But then also, set against the backdrop of all of that is season five was of Xena was just such a uh, emotional roller coaster on so many ways, and to have so many of the intercharacter dynamics going on for you to just kind of jump on the scene with such an impression like that was uh, it, it still it really it holds up as uh, one of the really great introductions on the show. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, I mean, I, I would love to take credit, but I mean, clearly the credit goes to all of the pieces that supported me looking amazing and fierce like that. You know, that camera work and that fight choreography and that incredible costume and, you know, just all of the pieces where I was like, oh my God, could I have this in my everyday life, please? You know, <laughs> it's really, really juicy. But you're right. There's a lot of through lines. I mean, I think I think Eve or Olivia, when she first came on the scene, was incredibly self-satisfied, confident in her power, had a an, a goal that she knew she could reach, and had absolutely no self-doubt. And you know, that's a, a thing that I think has occurred with several characters uh, that I've had. I've been lucky enough to play over the years, where even though you eventually see other sides of them, their introduction includes their very best day. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a snippet from their life that is like, oh yes, that's everything that they hoped they had could ever be and ever wanted to be. And as the audience, we get to witness that. And then throughout their storyline, we then eventually get to unpack it and find more. Yeah, I mean, really, the 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 whole introduction of Eve is is such an uh, emotional roller coaster, and you. You do such a great job. Uh, I'm thinking in in the the first episode you appeared in, uh, you have a scene with uh, with Zena, and it's really it's it's just you and Lucy Lawless, and she's pleading like you're my daughter. And at first you're like, well, you're lying, and then on top of that, like kind of in in really great Eve fashion, you're just like, well, you, you it's like you kind of accept it, and it kind of becomes like a oh, I don't I don't I don't really care. I'm still like this is I, I really don't have time for this. I'm about to marry Augustus. I'm about to be em empress. Like I, I really don't. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. She uh, <laughs> she very much understood her, her place in the food chain and in her life and was completely uninterested in anything that Xena wanted. She had no interest in reconciliation, you know, just all of these pieces were not... Uh, you know, they were, they were not in her wheelhouse of acceptable at that point. She just was goal oriented with this life that she had created and, you know, and rightfully so, cause it was pretty damn amazing. Yeah. I'm, I, I spend a lot of time like thinking about uh, the trajectories of, of uh, television history and kind of how uh, seasons have evolved and constricted. And I mean, kind of the beauty of Xena was that it aired tw 22 episodes, it's six seasons, 22 episodes, that's like something that nowadays is so completely unheard of. You see it, uh, network TV does it a little bit, but even then they're kind of uh, constricting it a bit. And yeah. if you follow kind of how a lot of shows tend to go, especially the ones that go six, seven, eight seasons, you joined the show kind of at the point where a lot of other shows start to get kind of bad. And then they're like, okay, let's do one more season. And then that's it. And when you joined it really it, it it was kind of it's it surprising because it was a season sort of defined by uh a lot of the i mean your your character came about because lucy lawless was pregnant and um couldn't do a lot of the action scenes they brought aries had a much much bigger role than in at least the season before that and kind of at the point where xena you you 
if if you were following kind of a natural trajectory of TV shows, kind of where it would start to want to go downhill, it started just kind of producing some of the show's best work. It was really yeah. remarkable. No, they, it was really extraordinary to be part of because even being that young and that inexperienced at the time, I was aware of every second of how lucky I was to be there because it was, you know, I arrived at a time when they were such a well-oiled machine. So the fight choreography was just on point. The costumes were just amazing. And they were at this moment when, you know, they were getting... On one hand, these accolades and attention because the the series was so popular worldwide. And so it gave them this permission and this idea of, you know, we want to do whatever we can do with this extraordinary moment we have found ourselves in in history. So, I mean, I remember, I think that episode was, I think it was called The God You Know. It was the one with uh, Alexis Arquette and uh, Garth. Oh, shoot. Caligula. She was great as that. Yes, yes, yes. I can't remember his name, but his first name is Garth, who directed it. And what I re- one of the things, this is just a totally random piece of trivia, but one of the random things I remember it about it was that, you know, uh, uh, at the time, at least, a network television vision series was essentially 44 minutes long, you know, the rest of it being commercial space, of course. But I remember that the finished episode, like the director's cut of that episode was something like an hour and 40 minutes. I mean, it was just like they made this epic feature film in two weeks. You know, (laughs) they just did every, you know, pulled no punches, just do everything, you know, like this, like it was the circus. And it was just this time when, yes, let's try it all. Let's do everything because we we know this is an experience that's ending. So let's just jump in and, you know, take the biggest bite that we can. And it was exhilarating to be part of, to, you know, I think one of the things being in, uh, for writers, I think one of the most exhilarating things must, must be watching your words turn into real life things in front of you. And that last season, I just can't even imagine the things that writers wrote thinking, oh, they'll cut that because it's too expensive or, oh, they'll downsize that. And instead they just doubled down and made them bigger and better and wilder. And yeah, it was fun. It was, it was really extraordinary. Yeah. I really, and it, it's funny to think of too, like that was Xena was on top of the world. And nowadays, like if you had a show that was that big and had such a, like the depth to the uh, recurring cast and the supporting cast, uh, like right around the time of its final season, uh, you know, you, you, you'd kind of expect the producers to hold a big fan event and then you'd see like 10 different series announced. And like, it's just, it's, it's so remarkable to think like, and you know, I, I, on the sort of the flip side, very few shows get to go out on top. So like, you know, it, it's kind of like as a fan, you're like, oh, I really, I would have really loved, I would have personally really loved to have seen uh, Eve spin off. You had such great relationships with the, the Amazons too in the sixth season, all of those yeah. really extended battles. Uh, you know, it's hard to think now if the show was airing that there wouldn't be like five or six spinoffs announced. Oh, 100% that would be happening now. I mean, it was a really interesting time period because, you know, when, while I was part of the series was when Xena was the biggest show in the world. And yet the show ended and we couldn't get jobs. I mean, you know, for the vast majority of the cast. And there was this very interesting dynamic that was happening where it took, I would say, at least 10 years for this to shift, where people would pretend they didn't watch it because they thought that it was like guilty pleasure, not respectable television to admit that they were fans. And I mean, it took probably 10 years. And then there was this shift where finally I would start going into casting offices and they would say, don't tell, but I just want you to know that I loved that show. (laughs) And it was just this, you know, this strange phenomenon. And then it took another, you know, nearly 10 years for it to be really recognized as the phenom that it was. And, you know, the way that it changed culture for women and for action series. And, you know, there were so many of those pieces. And you know, I've heard rumor that they absolutely did intend to have Eve be a spinoff, but it just wasn't a market that was open to that at that time. And, you know, I mean, I certainly don't know all the information, but I just, I find it fascinating how so much of life is just about perception and how that show was so beloved 
and yet also derided at the same time. And now how looking back, we, ha- we can have a completely different level of respect for it. I mean, you know, this is an embarrassing thing that happened that I will share because why not? Um, so the show ends 2001, I believe. Yep. And uh, it was either, and later, no, it was, it was the same year. So the show ends around May, June, whenever the last episode airs. And then the, Emmys, the Emmy Awards are in late August or early September. So the Emmy Awards calls and asks my agent for permission to use some of my footage from Xena in the Emmy broadcast. And, you know, apparently did the same thing for Lucy. And we we were both like, oh, sure, that sounds exciting. Amazing. So we give permission for them to use footage and they request clips and I guess they're delivered. And so it comes Emmy night and I'm excitedly watching how the heck am I supposed to be part of the Emmy, uh, Emmy broadcast? It just, you know, they didn't give us details and I guess no one asked. And it was Gary Shandling was uh, the host that year. And as a joke, Gary Shandling comes out and wants to, give an homage to all of the shows that have absolutely no chance of ever being nominated for an Emmy. Oh, no. And the footage starts playing, and it's me and Lucy Lawless in a big battle. And it was just, I mean, it was funny, but it was also, you know, just incredibly painful because you we've worked so hard, and that show had such heart. And, you know, and it it was, you know, it was a good joke. There's no doubt about it. But it was also that, you know, it was our show and then it was like really bad reality television. And that's just sort of culturally the way that it was being bandied about at the time. And it took a long time for people to really be willing to admit how important the show was to them, how groundbreaking it was, how if if not for that show, there wouldn't have been a Buffy the Vampire Slayer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, it yep. really changed culture. So I could not be more proud to have been part of it. I could not have had a better time. I loved every second on that series. I just loved it. And I completely understand the fans that to this day wish that there was more and actively try to create more. I get it. I completely get it. And I also just look back on it as this, you know, this beautiful experience that I got to have. And I, I'm not trying to make it more than it was. I'm just try, trying to respect it for everything that it was because it was just wonderful. Well, when when we had Michael Hurst on the show, when I, when I was doing my introduction, this show, uh, we started, um, I, I've spoken at uh, Con of Thrones and uh, at academic conferences on, on Game of Thrones. And mm. I've been very, very interested in the history of fantasy. And I always kind of say, like, look, it goes back to Hercules. This 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 era of um, the time when when uh, fantasy shows went from you know uh, Herculesina and sort of the first run syndication market to now like you know the quote unquote peak TV prestige drama that kind of stuff. The stuff that does get uh, nominated for Emmys year in and year out, right? Um, like. I say, like, look, you really you can draw a straight line between that the fantasy work that you guys were doing with such great storytelling that was also, I mean, you you bring up uh, how it was like a guilty pleasure for people. When I describe Xena to a lot of people, I mean, I, I we're I mean, between covering uh, Sundance and South by Southwest is starting, uh, we'll be having people on that pretty much next week. Uh, when I'm not doing that kind of stuff, it, it, it's it's really hard to. Um, beat Xena in terms of like comfort television and just you want 40 minutes where you're going to be entertained you're going to laugh you're going to there's a lot of emotional stakes and it's hard to beat like you really nowadays with fantasy shows the big battle costs over 10 million dollars you get like one and it's at the end of the season your with your show you had fight scenes that were uh multiple times an episode it's it's hard to beat yeah no i mean it, i look back and i just think i can't even it, it just, what they were able to accomplish was really remarkable. And I think there's so many pieces that go into it, including the fact that it was in New Zealand. So you had, you know, this incredibly excited team of young filmmakers, people just getting into the business. 
and just eager to push the envelope and to see what magic they could make happen. And plus, of course, you're in the most beautiful place ever. You know, you're just surrounded by these extraordinary locations. Yes. So it's just, you know, you're constantly inspired by what story could I tell in that location and in this one. And, you know, there there were just some beautiful things that came together to make that possible. And yeah, I, I really think its legacy lives on. Well, also with legacy, I mean, this is a LGBTQ themed show. Uh, it is a, it, not only. I mean, I think a lot of times Xena gets a lot of credit for being like a um, a for, forerunner for uh, LGBTQ representation on screen, even though obviously Xena and Gabrielle were not, uh, you know, actually canonically uh, together. But like, just just for an example, when when uh, we booked you to come on and I was explaining to my partner who Eve was, cause we've tended to, we actually in the beginning of COVID were watching a lot of the first season of Xena. And uh, when I described who Eve was to my partner, I said, Eve is Xena uh, and Gabrielle's child, which is, you know, not, not literally true in the sense that you're not Gabrielle's daughter, but like the same kind of like sentiment. And especially in a lot of your episodes, Gabrielle is, is really Xena's rock throughout like the emotional turmoil that's going on. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I think the the catch that I have in my body when you say that has nothing to do about the two mothers. It's that I really think that there's this interesting power play that happens subtly between the character of Gabrielle and the character of Eve because they both want Xena's attention. You know? Right. So there's this sort of push-pull that you know, uh, that Eve is looking for finally having that relationship with the mother that she never have had, but it's also right at that moment where Zena and Gabrielle have reached, you know, yet a further level of their relationship. And in whatever way, as an audience member, you uh, consume that fact, it's still that they have never been closer than they are at this point in history. So, you know, it's an interesting thing to, to walk through. Well, I think it's still kind of an important show in 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 terms of uh, LGBTQ representation on screen like that because we haven't really had you know we haven't had a uh, show with um, an action show like that with with canonically gay characters that could really kind of take its place. And along those same lines, something that I noticed and I, I tried to Google it and see if people had really written on the significance of it, but. The season five finale, Motherhood, uh, has a a really pivotal, the whole climax, uh, it flew under the radar for a really, really noteworthy thing that um, we're still kind of waiting to see in kind of action and fantasy shows. When, when, uh, When Xena and Gabrielle and Eve go to Olympus with Aphrodite, there's that whole, that whole sequence is... 100%, I mean, not uh, 100% women, but it's mostly female-oriented. You have uh, Xena, Eve, Gabrielle, Aphrodite, Artemis, Athena. Ares is the only guy around. And, like, that kind of dynamic of uh, women representation in, in fantasy, we still don't really see that nowadays. It, it was so sort of subtly groundbreaking. At the oh, time. completely. And it was what was great about it is that you both noticed – and it was perfectly normal, so not even noticed in the moment. You know what I mean? By the audience, but even by those of us making it. I mean, you, of course, you know, love having all of these extraordinary women around you, but it didn't even deeply occur to me how shocking that could be for the culture. And I mean, not shocking because people accepted it easily and gracefully. And of course, it just makes sense. But at the same time, it's absolutely, as you said, not something that people were used to seeing on screen. Just that many women of power in a moment together, not hating each other. I mean, normally you have more than one woman of power and they have to be trying to kill each other in some sense, you know, or trying to steal the other's man or something where this was purely a, you know, a celebration of the power of these goddesses and these women, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, one of the, one of the really great aspects of Xena that I love is, um, you know, Xena has such deep relationships with so many of the characters, but uh, especially in season five with uh, the the contrast between with her relationship, the really deeply complex relationship with her and Ares. And then you come in and when I, when I saw him, uh, when I saw Kevin Smith there and I was, I looked, I noted to my partner, I'm like, Kevin Smith could really have chemistry, on-screen chemistry with just about anyone and to see him like it's the the mother-daughter contrast of of eve and xena and and aries there i mean i think he's pretty much in most of the episodes that that you're in i I thought that that was 
just such a like powerful dynamic of, of for for you for them to have such powerful chemistry and for you to come in and just kind of make that uh thing a, more of a, a a triangle was was just really it was a testament to uh your acting and really to everybody's acting it was really uh, well really also just a testament to kevin in general because he had such unbelievable just charisma that jumped off the screen and you know just such a great sense of self so he could be powerful and cool and interesting, but also entirely self-deprecating and just hilarious. And, you know, it's all of those pieces that came into play that allowed that to be something that actually worked on screen. Yeah. Um, so before we move on to uh, uh, Star Trek, I, did you get, so one of the other kind of things of uh, uh, TV that have, have sort of uh, become less important as time gone on is the fact that, you know, you'd, you'd be on the air for like nine months of the year and then you'd have the summer kind of off and there'd, there'd be like a season finale and then you'd wait a few months and it'd come back and now like shows come you know, with, with Netflix, sometimes they just come on and there's eight episodes and then you have to wait the full year. Did you get like a lot of uh, <laughs> angry fan letters when you, uh, Eve is kind of most noteworthy uh, or uh, very noted for uh, killing Joxer? Oh, uh, to this day, I have people that are still angry <laughs> about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, which I I love because everybody, what's, what's interesting is when people blur the line between actors and their roles, because people always get mad at me, but it's beyond being mad about Joxer. People get mad at me as if I took uh, a job away from Ted Raimi, which, <laughs> you know, first of all, you know, Ted Raimi was done with the series. He was eager to get back and had other work he was going back to. But second of all, I didn't write it. <laughs> and, and then third of all, you know, the way that it plays out is that he sort of trips onto my sword. I don't even, right. you know what I mean? So there's all of these things that, that I find really comical about how angry people are to this day with me. I mean, people, people will, yes, they definitely write me angry letters or have in the past. And when I've done personal appearances that I think it would be very rare that I had a personal appearance where someone didn't bring that up for sure. Yeah, because I mean, earlier in that episode, you have a dagger to his throat, kind of in the the cold open in the beginning, and then I, I remember the time, like in my memory, I'm like, that's not when he dies. And then later in the episode, it is kind of like he, he he he. Not only did he sort of trip and fall on it, but he got in Zena's sight of fire, like she could have kind of stopped you. And yeah, yes, not, so I'm yeah. so glad you've got my back on this. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it's just so, it's funny to hear you talk about that too because I know from like uh, studying the reading about uh, the history of the show uh, when he joined people were angry about him kind of being the the third wheel of Zena and Gabrielle so then to people get mad at you because he dies I mean Ted Raimi phenomenal actor uh, really sold the character and uh, uh, his appearances we love Jock Sir yeah that's uh, that's not surprising to hear that you got a lot of crap for that but. Um, not deserved at all. So, uh. well, I mean, you know, the one thing that I can say is I love that people are that enthusiastic about it. The fact that their emotions are that high about it is, you know, that's a privilege to be part of. It's just unfortunate when it's not supportive. <laughs> that's yeah, uh, totally agree. And uh, so, in addition to playing the daughter of, of Zena, one of the most iconic uh, female action characters of all time, you also play the daughter of Khan Noonien Singh. One of uh, Star Trek's really great, great, great villain. I actually, at the beginning of COVID, my partner hadn't seen Wrath of Khan, and I, I've seen it too many times, but I had to watch it again, and it still holds up. And uh, actually, while I mentioned my partner, she actually was familiar with... Um, they studied... She's a lawyer at uh, USC Law. They studied... Uh, a lot of a lot of fans in the legal community of, of all the work that uh, you you all did on the the Star Trek fan films are really remarkable. Oh uh, well, that's good to hear. Wow, that that's not something I was expecting. Thank you. <laughs> well, we, I know we we have a lot of Star Trek fans, and uh, I I've I contributed a chapter to an academic book on Star Trek Voyager. So Star Trek Renegades is of particular interest because I think of of the handful of uh, actors who reprise their roles from the show. I think the bulk of them were from Voyager with uh, uh, Walter Koenig's uh, Chekhov being like the, the big uh, exception. And that's actually kind of an important ex exception because he was kind of the link to Khan from the original series cast in Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. So to have him be in your film where you're playing the daughter of Khan, I mean, that's really cool. 
Oh, it, it was amazing. It's another one of those things where I thought, thank God I don't, I wasn't a huge Star Trek fan when I was initially connected to the material, which I think is one of the ways that you get a job. I think sometimes when you want something so much, you naturally, your energy sort of pushes it away because you want it too much. But with this, it sort of came to me easily. And I think part of it is because I didn't even know how big of a deal it was when it first presented itself to me. And it, you know, the thing I was excited about was just that the character seemed incredibly cool. I thought, you know, everything they shared with with me about her was interesting, powerful, shocking. You know, she's genetically engineered. She is the daughter of Khan, but is she good or is she bad? And you know, they they described her like a pirate. You know, sort of stealing from you know, all of these, these different avenues, but in the end, you know, everything she's doing is for good. So there was sort of this Robin Hood aspect to her. And in the films, you, you come to realize that she is a, a, a black ops, uh, she, she's the head of a black ops team. So they are doing the things that have to be done and they are darker than had existed in Star Trek before generally, but she's doing them on behalf of the Federation. So her, her core belief system is in line with, you know, traditional Star Trek values, but it's just with this sort of crew of misfits and being done in a way that is sort of darker and more surprising. And, you know, I mean, you meet, I mean, this says it all, you meet the character and she's in prison. (laughs) You know, that kind of tells you everything that you need to know to, to see how the line has sort of, you know, scooched one direction with, uh, with the storytelling. Well, what was so cool about the introduction is like Khan uh, in, in both his episode on the original series and then in uh, Wrath of Khan, he, he plays my, he, the great beauty of the character is how many mind games he plays with uh, Kirk, Kirk mainly, but also kind of the rest of the cast. And when you see, you know, you're playing his daughter and you're in prison and uh, there's some mind games there too, but then you see, uh, you know, Tuvok comes there, and you know, in terms of the Voyager cast, he was really the 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 one that didn't get really phased by anything. And well, I guess also Janeway, but um, as a Vulcan, uh, we did a episode last uh, last month all about the or December about the Ponfar, which is the Vulcan mating thing, and about how kind of Tuvok's. It was just so fun to see that character uh, pushed to the limit by his hormones and. Uh, to have- <laughs> To have kind of to have your character opposite the unflappable Tuvok and Tim Russ who directed the film, it was just it was so cool to watch. Oh well, I I agree with you wholeheartedly, <laughs> uh, and mainly I say that because I just think Tim is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. I love him so much. I love him as an actor. I love him as a director. I love him as a friend. I love him. At, I love to do panels with him. I I just adore him, and you know I, he and I have lots of juicy ideas for stuff to collaborate on in the future, uh, having nothing to do with Star Trek, although of course sharing a love of that. But yeah, I just, I couldn't agree more. Those were my favorite scenes were the scenes with Tim and, you know, just getting to, cause again, this is what's this I love so much. It's my favorite thing about collaborating is just when you and your director see things the same way, it is just gorgeous and, you know, this was low budget and fast shooting and there's not a lot of room to play. And, you know, he didn't know me when I showed up for work or when I, I mean, we knew each other in passing, but he was not super aware of what I would bring to the table until the day of, uh, that we started shooting. And I just remember, you know, he's like, well, let me see what, what you want to do. And then, you know, we'll come to a, we'll create it together, but let me see what you want to do. And so I said, okay. And so we, we um, did a take and we filmed, we did a rehearsal and we filmed the rehearsal and he's like, that's exactly what I wanted. We could have, you know, that could be all that we need. And, you know, we did it more just to play with it, but it was just, he saw it the same way I did. We both knew what we wanted. We knew what the character's strengths and weaknesses were and how to showcase those in ways that were interesting as opposed to uh, just typical. So, you know, within the constraints of the time that we had and the budget that we had, we were really excited to make this character as dynamic as she could be. Well, I mean, that's also, I mean, 
What's what's was really fun about Re- Renegades? Uh, as I was watching it last week, and I was texting some of the uh, Trek people I podcast with, and they were like, "Is that is that any good?" And I said, oh, "I said, look at the effects. Like those are like the, the way they did the Icarus is so incredible, and the sets were great, and uh, the, the acting it, it was so fun to to see so many. Uh, you know, Corin Nemec was in it. Uh, a lot of the other cast uh, to see your your uh, acting alongside uh, each other. It, it, it's I kept like thinking to myself, you know, I was wondering kind of what was going through your head when this was first pitched to you, because I think a lot of people have this reaction to, oh, it's a fan film. Like, what is what does that mean? And then when when you see the finished product, it it really it, it kind of flips the script and and sort of um, really it, it challenges anyone who sits down and watches it. It'll challenge all preconception uh, preconceived notions of what a fan film is. Well, I'm going to take issue with you. Not really, but kind of. I'm going to take issue with the idea that I don't consider this a fan film at all, period, send. Um, Mm. I think it's a complete misnomer. To me, a fan film is fans making a film uh, as opposed to using – to me, what this is is an independent Star Trek project. So Uh it is low budget. It is definitely partially fan funded, no doubt about it. It had absolutely gorgeous support from the fan base that wanted to tell this story. And I applaud them so much for having that sort of energy and support for us. I can't, I can't be grateful enough. And yet, I think just simply the term fan film is completely a misnomer because you're talking about every single filmmaker involved in this was a professional filmmaker. Every single actor, I think there was maybe one role, one small role that was auctioned off as part of a fan fundraiser. But my point is, it's professionals making a professional product. The fan element was strictly in the fundraising, which to me, couching it that way just seems, you know, like it's not something that like three dudes who love Star Trek made to show their friends at a convention. And I don't downplay that either. There's value in that. I'm just saying, I think people assume it's going to be worse because of that phrase. A hundred percent. And that's kind of like what what I was getting at with, with sort of uh, flipping the script in terms of how, um, just prof- it's a professional production through and through. And and when, when they came to you to do it, I mean, I, it, it, it seems, it, it for me it's so interesting to see how many of the uh series cast they got i mean tim ross obviously directs it so that was uh really really cool to see um you know when 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 you came on board what you know what was that like well i mean the truth is i didn't <laughs> the absolute truth is i didn't know anything about the fan funding all that i knew is that my agent got this offer for a role in star trek that was this juicy yummy role and they said it was low budget but they did have the money raised and that's honestly all the information that i knew when i first joined so it's only after i joined that i realized all of these other layers of the process to make this film and by then i was already on board and fully uh, committed. So I was just happy to have this work and to have this new uh, fandom experience. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is is really the the power of the. I mean, some, sometimes people ask me like, "You ever get tired of Star Trek?" And when I when I when I they ask, I'm like, "Well, there's 800 episodes." So I mean, the short answer is obviously no. I never, I'll never <laughs> get tired of never get tired of Star Trek. But like the power of the 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 fan the fan base and the amount of personal friendships that I've made over you know people I I didn't necessarily know that well, and then we started talking about Star Trek, and that just goes on. For hours and hours and hours and it's it's your your film is in a lot of ways kind of like the a a shining example of of how just thoroughly rich this this community is that they can you know raise the money and and put on a production like this that is i mean the uh the film the film's on youtube for anybody to watch you know you don't have to take my word for it if you haven't seen it go check it out i mean see for yourself it's really it's a remarkable work um and yeah, it's just, it's just so cool. It's so cool that I mean, between that and Star Wars and Xena, you've been a part of these franchises that are, are really it, it it is important to fans. It's like it's not just a show. No, it's absolutely true, and it certainly has taught me that lesson because the work transcends my part in it. You know, I'm just I'm part of something that is so much bigger, and that is a privilege that I didn't even know to dream of back in the day. You know, that's just not even something that that you put into, into the, 
your ideas of what you want your career to be. And my God, have I been lucky. Well, like kind of along those same lines, like with um, the Clone Wars, when it first came out in, in 2008, I mean, I remember I remember when it, it, its first incarnation, it was this big event thing. I think it was like a Saturday and it was on at, uh, I, I want to say eight o'clock. This is a long time ago, but uh, Cartoon Network. And, uh, you know, it's before it was the full series and it was this clip and you see the new animation. And at the time, everybody's kind of like, okay, Revenge of the Sith done. The six movies are, are done. I don't think anybody thought Star Wars was going away forever, but there was like a huge question mark on on what comes next. And and for a lot of years, the Clone Wars was kind of the thing that was keeping Star Wars like it was the one thing, at least on screen, that was uh, giving giving fans kind of a okay, there's going to be something else, but this is really really cool in the in the process. And when people say like, is are they going to make new Star Wars? And then people say, well, look, check out the Clone Wars. Look at how cool this stuff is. The animation and the characters they wrote just such great characters. Yeah, no, those stories were incredibly rich and so political, and you know, just they were they were more than what you would think that they were. They just had a, a second life to them. And now, like you know, they they have a, a second life, and um, now with with the Mandalorian, I, I'm I'm thinking like uh, Ahsoka Tanao is getting her own show, and your character on uh, the Clone Wars, the daughter, really does kind of play a big, uh, you know, you're, you're only in a couple episodes, but you play a really important role in her arc, and not only that, but like in in terms of just like the broader mythology, yeah. Uh, your character is is like representative of the light side of the force and and for years and years i just watched a new hope for the first time again the force is just kind of this abstract thing that you can kind of like you can't see you you just kind of you you can explain it but you can't see and then for for the daughter was just such like a okay you are the literal manifestation of the force i know no pressure right <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was exquisite. Um, you know, my, my introduction was through um, Maris Brood and The Force Unleashed. And then I jumped at The Clone Wars initially just because Sam and I, Sam Witwer, who was the lead of The Force Unleashed, he he and I were hired as son and daughter. And it was all top secret. We had abs- We didn't get the script. We didn't get a character description. We got nothing. We just showed up at the location. And I said, what are you playing? And he says, son. And I said, oh, I'm playing daughter. We must be siblings. And, you know, but we didn't know. We had absolutely no idea what was happening. And we didn't get the material until we arrived and, of course, had to give the material back before we left. And, you know, Dave Filoni is so amazing and just knows what he wants, what he needs. It's, you know, everything down to the tiniest detail is so like uh, you can just trust it. You just know that he's getting what he wants because he knows exactly what he needs. And so those episodes were a joy to create and they had the art there, the initial art. And I'm sure you know this, but they also, they, they video, they record all of your performances because those are also uh, used as pieces for the animation and, you know, to help guide the the characters even further and just, the the epicness of what those episodes were, I just remember Sam and I looking at each other like, holy crap, what did we just walk into? Because we had no idea when we got there how big they were. And they were just beautiful. And the animation I thought was stunning. And then I've had this, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say I, it's a little uh, it's a little self-aggrandizing, but nonetheless, I have had this experience where in my Clone Wars episodes, my character gives her life to save Ahsoka, but then it creates, you know, you sort of find out in Rebels, and of course, please forgive me for not telling this exactly appropriately. Probably every <laughs> other fan could do such a better job. But that the after giving her life force, I, I sort of become this, uh, they, they call it the Convor, the Mirai, who is this bird that watches over Ahsoka and you can see her in Rebels and now you can see her in The Mandalorian. And I just think, you know, obviously I'm not working on that show. And yet I sort of symbolically feel like I'm part of that show because I have such a love of that character that, that I feel like I helped create. And, you know, just watching that character have a life that goes beyond what I was even directly part of has been really thrilling. Just really exciting to see the the symbolism continue and be so beautiful. Well, I, I, I know that we have a lot of listeners who, who, who love the Clone Wars, and I, I, I've heard this sentiment over the past couple months time and time again that just 
for for a while the Clone Wars fan base it, it felt like its own part of the Star Wars universe, and now just to see all of that on on the Mandalorian, and it it, it feels just like I don't. I was just about to say cathartic, but it's not really it's not really catharsis. But just for for uh, for so many people who were, I mean. It, the idea that I mean, there's been so many different franchises have done animated series, and the idea that something that that aired in like 2011 or or whatnot is now super super important to understanding the future of one of the biggest franchises in the world. I mean, Ahsoka's getting her, her own spinoff. Uh, who knows? I mean, we we may we may see daughter again. Oh, knock on wood. It's it's just it it's so it, it for 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 fans. It it really is like the greatest time to be alive. Oh, that's beautiful to hear. How lovely. But I get what you're saying and I appreciate it too. And it's that thing where, you know, you send out ships and you just hope that they come back. You know, we all do this every day. And I think the Clone Wars is having its moment in that way and that it had its, you know, it certainly had its fans at the time, but it now has this new level of respect and appreciation coming to it that I think is so gorgeous to witness. Well, also you mentioned, uh, uh, um, Maris and the 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 Force Unleashed that at the time too was was such a groundbreaking game with the the mechanics and stuff and I know just I mean I I, I have basically every Star Wars game that was ever made <laughs> and I've I, I collect retro systems so I have a lot of really really old, like ones that are well older than I am um and the battle mechanics of that game and not only that but like that's a game that could have sold itself on the sort of how 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 unique and innovative the controls were but at the same time it also had a really uh rich story and and your character plays like a big i love that yeah i love that character and i loved that project and it's so funny because you know the world the universe of of star wars has so many things happening at once and originally the force unleashed was supposed to be a trilogy that told the story of the years between the two existing film trilogies. So there was all of this, you know, I mean, they spent, I think on that first game, they spent like eight or 10 years making it. I mean, you know, obviously the the actors, we come in towards the end. I think I worked on that game for about two years and it was exciting because they were breaking ground with technology and the way that we did the mocap and the image capture, but even just the voice work was done in a way that I had never experienced before where we shot it. I mean, we were in front of a mic, so your movements are somewhat limited, but your other actors would be in the room with you acting off of you, which is at the time was unheard of for a video game, which normally would just be you alone in a booth saying your lines without any clue how the other actors would bounce off of that and just knowing that it would be married together later in the in the editing process but this was so satisfying cuz you were with the other actors you were like my character actually had the the little prosthetic horns and you know I had yep. certain things that that gave me, uh, you know, more of a window into the character and just seeing how much effort they put into it. I mean, everybody loved these stories. And so it was, you know, we were, it was initially sort of couched as canon and apparently no longer, uh, again, forgive me for my, I, I'm just, it, it, might, even, it might be, but again, soon, but see, wait, that's, uh, but, I mean, knock on wood again, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is that I just think these stories are so delicious and, you know, the fans love them, but they are, they're both intimate and epic. You know, it's about these grand themes and these universal truths, but it's also just about survival and it's about connection. And I just think there's so much to explore there. And Maris is another one who I would love to see her get her due in the future. Just uh, the more the merrier. And and I think that the fans would love that too. I just, because the other thing is that Maris had this backstory that wasn't covered in the video game. And I think possibly in some of the novels it was alluded to, but the yeah, story the that comics too. Exactly, exactly. But just the story that I was told about her made her just so so much more than you than what ended up on screen in the end. You know, her story had to be sort of curtailed because of course it wasn't her story. She was part of the bigger story. But if you tell it from her perspective, wow, there's some juicy stuff in there. And I mean, Maris is kind of connected to the the daughter too, in a in a way. The daughter gives herself to to save Ahsoka, 
who is Anakin's uh, essentially Padawan at the time, and then uh, your character is uh, spared by Starkiller, who is Darth Vader's apprentice. So you've got that kind of the, you've got that that link between Vader and Anakin, and the sort of the two sides, good and light. And Maris also is somebody uh, who's who's struggling with uh, the dark side of the Force and all of that. It's it's it. As a fan, and like this is the stuff that people just really eat up, and uh, it it helps these fans. I've, it, there's a reason that Star Wars and Star Trek have been around for so long. It's because they these stories are so interconnected, and they they give they give they give you so much to go on. It, well, and really, they show shades of humanity. I mean, Maris's story, as as I know it, you know, Maris was a full on Jedi. You know, she didn't come into the world as a Sith, she was a full-on Jedi with this gorgeous relationship with her master, but then literally everyone she knew was murdered and she was on a planet by herself for years. So it was when she started to go insane and lose her grip on reality that the dark side was able to step in. And I think there's so much symbolism in that just for humanity too, of it's when you lose your compass, your center, your bearings, that that's when... Uh, you know, when, when all of your touchstones leave, no wonder it's easier to be wooed by things that you normally would not be interested in, you know? And and it could be also just pieces of her personality that were already pre-existing, but nonetheless, it's all of these specific circumstances that actually led to what she became. Yeah, I, I, it's so fascinating to hear you talk about all of that. And just just the, I, I know as, as, as a host and as a, as a fan too, uh, it's always it's always really uh, important in touch. I mean, you you know, there's obviously act like Harrison Ford is famous for when people ask him kind of questions about Han Solo. He's like, I don't. Like, they asked him like with the new movie, was he a Force ghost? And he's like, I don't know what the f that is. <laughs> And it's it's funny, but I mean, like, you know, you're you're somebody who's been involved in in fan community, going to conventions and all of that for so long. And it, it, it as, as a fan, it, it's it's really uh, it's fun to see that you know you actually you you have a lot of passion for your characters. And I I think like you know when 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 that kind of goes to you know your your current performances. And when I'm watching Dreamcatcher, it feels like yeah, this is a character who's in in, in a movie. And you know, there's not going to be like a, a Dreamcatcher cinematic universe. But when you bring your performance to that that role, you know, you feel like I was like smiling because it's like, okay, here's you know, Josephine. You see so much of Eve, and you see so much of your right. other characters, and it's it's so fun to you know from you know they're they're not literally connected, but at the same time, you see your 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 filmography all alive in that. Oh, you know, I love. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it, and I I mean I definitely see that there's you know legacy through that. That Josephine would not exist in the details. Her performance would not be the same. How do I put this? Josephine would not be the same Josephine if I hadn't played Livia or if I hadn't played Maris or if, et cetera and so forth. Like all of those do build on each other. They just they create sort of their own life force within you that contributes to all the characters you end up playing. So it's definitely interconnected, and I'm I'm grateful you see that. And I think I think for for fans of uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, you know, all sorts of uh, throughout all of your career. I mean, I I think it, it Dreamcatcher gives uh, a lot of uh, it's very. I think for for your longtime fans and for fans of the franchises, uh, your performance in Dreamcatcher really does. Uh, Add a add an extra layer to uh, the film, which is so um, uh, steeped in in horror lore, and uh, it kind of subverts the the. We're seeing kind of a revival between that and uh, the most recent Halloween movie that came out in 2018. We're seeing kind of like a revival of the genre in a way that that recognizes what was done in the past and is doing new things. And and as a critic and everything, it's 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 fun to watch. It's 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 fun to see these things unfold in real time. Oh, nice! I love it. I uh, this has been such a joy. I'm so glad that we got to connect. Thank you. Um, usually we ask uh, as, as we wrap up, uh, you know, uh, uh, COVID has been terrible for uh, the film industry as a whole, especially actors. I know a lot of people have been able to kind of shift things remote, but uh, a lot harder to do that with uh, uh, when you're an actor. Although uh, ha- having just covered Sundance, uh, 
people did, you know, uh, to quote Jeff Goldblum's character in uh, Jurassic Park, life finds a way. Uh, so does film. Right, right. <laughs> you, you doing okay in uh, the coronavirus? Uh, Everything going yes. On? Um, obviously, it's been a challenge. And uh, I think it's going to be years and years before we unpack the all of the pieces of how we've all been affected. But nonetheless, um, yes, I'm still thriving. So thank you for checking on me. And I'm exciting, excited for the next chapter af- after this, where I think we all will have such a greater appreciation of literally everything because we've just not <laughs> been able to do anything. <laughs> I Yeah, I, fan conventions. I'll, I, I'll go to every single fan convention on the planet. I live near the Long Beach Convention Center just a couple blocks away, and it's just so sad to see it closed and empty. Uh, although now it's with vaccines, so that's great. Uh, and, you know, as as we wait for the next chapter, uh, there's so much of your, you have such a fascinating filmography. Uh, Dreamcatcher comes out on uh, March 5th. Adrian, it's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so, so much. Have a good one. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, watch Dreamcatcher, and uh, we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.